0: I want to go where the moon shines bright. Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of the It Matters to Me podcast. My guest today is the one and only Matthew Norman, author of Domestic Violets, We're All Damaged, Last Couple Standing, and his newest release, All Together Now. You know what's really hard trying to sound articulate and pointed to someone who makes their living crafting concise but impactful stories, but Matthew couldn't have been more fun to talk to. We hit all sorts of topics that cover his progression as an author over the years and what it's been like to learn how to write through lived experiences, and he's often compared to other great authors like Jonathan Tropper or Richard Russo, but Matthew has made a name for himself in the literary world that has stood the test of time. And in fact, my introduction to him came years ago when he signed a copy of one of his books as a gift after I just cold emailed him out of the blue. Now, Matthew couldn't be a more likable person, and I was so truly honored to have him on the show. Now, I highly, highly, highly recommend you pick up all of his books because they're just so comedic and meaningful, but for now... You'll just have to enjoy my conversation with them, so let's get to it. Here's my talk with Matthew Norman. Matthew Norman, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good. Thank you very much. It's a lovely, sunny, warm day in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, yeah, I'm doing well.
0: That's right, you're based in Baltimore. And um have you always grown up in Baltimore or you you're actually from Nebraska, I think, correct?
1: Yes, I grew up in the Midwest. I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. I have a kind of a Midwestern vibe. Um but July July 15th this upcoming July 15th will be 20 years since I left Omaha. So I moved I moved east in 2001 um you know, just for grad school and just for sort of uh, just a change, you know, and uh, kind of never look back and I married a New Yorker and I have two kids born in Baltimore. So here I am, I think for life, you know,
0: speaking of kids, you know, one thing that I actually do like to do when I start each episode is asking about. Um, the guests and when they were kids, because I feel like, you know, there's sometimes there's a great correlation between the childhood and who they are today. And so let's say I'm giving your, uh, I don't even know if this is a thing, but let's say I'm giving your Pulitzer Prize uh, acceptance introduction speech, and I'm speaking to a crowd like the White House Correspondents Dinner. Um, And of course, I'm just going to have to embarrass you. Uh, with childhood stories, what kinds of stories would I tell about you? Uh, What would I I tell about the young Matthew Norman?
1: Wow, that's a good one. Uh, I like the idea of winning the Pulitzer. That's fun. Uh, I'm not sure about the correspondence dinner. I'm not sure I'd be welcome there. But uh, yeah, the Pulitzer would be fun. But um, I I was a a fiercely neurotic uh, little kid, I think. And looking back on it, I don't think... uh, people even realize. I don't think my parents kind of knew what to do with me. I was just neurotic and sort of nervous, and I was kind of a space cadet. And, um, you know, I I was creative, but I think not in ways that teachers thought was good. You know, I I was just sort of a mediocre student, and uh, I got a lot of, um, you know, maybe bothers his neighbors sort of comments on my little report cards and stuff. But uh, I was a fairly happy kid, you know, two loving parents, and I had a younger brother and uh you know i I kind of came to writing very early it was it was something that i that i did and i would write little stories in pencil and i would uh, read them to my parents you know that kind of thing
0: do you remember any of those stories were they um as fantastical as like a childhood imagination could be or were they uh very you know contemporary and you know were you at seven years old writing about you know geopolitics in some way
1: I steered clear of geopolitics uh, until I got to be probably my teens, but uh, no, when I was seven, they were, you know, they were about animals. I think I was basically just ripping off children's books around the house and just sort of copying them and plagiarizing early, I think was, was my thing. But uh, you know, my parents rolled with it. They were always very encouraging.
0: The equivalent of putting uh, your childhood, your, your child's artwork up on the fridge, just sitting there listening to you probably uh, come up with your own stories. Um, So I've actually heard before, you know, that you you've credited your high school teachers when it comes to writing. But then I think you've also there is a I heard you tell a story about how your dad told um, encouraged you to get into writing. So as you grow up, how did you find your way into into writing?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, it's it's an interesting journey because and I was talking about this last night because I had an event and. Every, it feels like every writer has a very different entry point into writing, and I was talking to a, a writer named Jessica Anya Blau last night, who's kind of an old friend, and, and she found it late. I mean, she was well you know, well into her 20s, and, and she was married, and she found herself in a different country for her husband's job, and just sort of took it up on a lark, and found that she was good at it, and has since published like five or six books or something. With me, I was different. Like I alluded to a minute ago, I... I, I, it's the only thing I've ever really wanted to do, to be perfectly honest with you, and and it's a weird thing to really want to do because it's sort of an abstract career. There's no there's no internship for it. There's no you know that kind of thing. And so I always wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a novelist. I discovered Stephen King when I was really young, like fourth grade. My parents didn't have a lot of you know sort of content restrictions, and I remember I pulled Pet Cemetery off of the shelf, my mom's bookshelf, and I read Pet Cemetery. And I was, you know, obviously a little kid, so I was horrified by it. But I was also excited by it because there was sex and violence and it was fun and it was scary. And and I, I had this this sort of moment where I was like, this can be fun. You know, this can be a cool thing to do. And I loved it, you know, and I just kind of kept doing it. But when I got to be a senior in high school, you're 18 years old, you have to start kind of choosing a path in life and like a career, Right. And my dad, you mentioned him, my dad's a straight-up business guy. You know, He had a nice, very successful career as just a corporate executive kind, kind of guy. And my parents were very accepting of, of me and wanting to be a writer. And my dad knew about ad agencies for, throughout his career. And he's like, uh, nobody's going to pay you to try to be a writer. You don't get paid for wanting to write novels. Get a job as an advertising writer. They're called copywriters. It's a real job. You can write and get paid for it and right at night and on the weekends, you're, you know, try to be a novelist. And I think usually when you're 17 or 18 and your dad gives you advice, you're like, shut up, dad. You don't know me. You know, that kind of thing. But I remember right when he said it, I was like, oh, my God, dad, that's you're right. That's perfect. And it, I just literally did exactly that. So I showed up to the University of Nebraska. You know, I was like, Hello. Matthew Norman here. I'm going to be a novelist, but right now I'm writing advertising. So, and that's exactly the path that I took. You know, twenty some years later, here I am. (laughs)
0: Let me grace you with my presence for a few years (laughs) while I.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I'll write some jingles and I'll write some headlines, but there's going to be novels. Believe me. Just you just wait when I'm in my 40s.
0: (laughs) You know, it's funny that those uh, that swagger. I mean, because obviously you are an author and you're a full time author now. And we'll get into your most recent book. But, you know, my introduction to you was domestic violence. And so I'm sure a lot of people, um, you know, when they come, when they find you, they maybe that's their path. And I know that there's some similarities when, you know, you've, you yourself have related your style of writing to other books or to other authors like um, Jonathan Tropper, I think, mm-hmm. and in um, and that, that similar vein. So when it came to, I guess... You know, when you decided that you wanted to write and you wanted to, you know, pursue being an author, how did you come? how did How did you find your voice, your narrative? That you know, w- what didn't what stop you from writing Pet Cemetery Two versus mm-hmm. writing in the way that you do? And I don't even know if there's Pet Cemetery Two out there or not.
1: I think there's a movie Pet Cemetery <laughs> Two. think I've, I've seen King the movie. Might have It gotten... messed me yeah. up as a kid. <laughs> yeah. I think they did a sequel that Stephen King wasn't, like, attached to. Like, maybe they sent him a check and they just made some crazy B-horror movie. But the actual, there's a couple of scary pet cemeteries based on that book. But, um, yeah, so I, when I was a little kid, like, I loved Stephen King. And in high school, I wrote, like, scary stories and got them in my lit magazine, you know, the lit magazine and stuff. But I in, in college is where I started thinking more about uh, just being more interested in relationships and humor. And I think that my books are all comedies. I mean, that's how they're described. And I think that my natural writing voice has become more and more comedic. And when I started writing on my own and not just ripping off Stephen King, I I found that I wanted to be funny. And I I thought that if I could, I could talk about serious things, if I was funny, you know, it it was almost like uh, Ben Affleck talked about when he uh, directed The Town, he said, you can do Whatever you want, if you put a couple of good action scenes in there, like the studio will green light anything. And I felt like I get that because I can be serious and try to tackle issues that maybe I'm grappling with if I try to be funny. And I feel like Richard Russo, it's Trapper, obviously, Jonathan Trapper is, you know, we, I think we sit next to each other on bookshelves all the time, but Richard Russo is a guy his book Straight Man really really affected me in a very very good way. I discovered it in college and he's just like what I described. There's a laugh a page on that book. It is hilarious. But he's dealing with mortality, he's dealing with the decline of a parent, he's dealing with very serious things, but it's a comedy. And I was like that's, you know, that's what I want to do for sure.
0: Yeah, um I think there's, you know, there's a quote um, from Richard Rousseau and it's you know, if you work at comedy too laboriously, uh, you can kill what's funny in the joke. Now, when, you know, for you with your focus being on comedy, um, and you, you know, I've, i tried to do my research before, uh, before we talked and, you know, listen to some of the inter- other interviews you've done and I've, you know, read your books and, um, and you are you are funny and you're you're not you know you know you're not funny in the stand-up comic like let me mic drop this moment on you mm-hmm. um but you, you you just you just have a, a humor that just sticks um because it you know in some ways it makes you think and you know i'm just trying to inflate uh i'm just trying to you know <laughs> Speak to how how funny I think you actually are, um but I think. <laughs> um, no, please but, go on. But, exactly. How, you know, how how could I come at this in many different ways? I fumble um in this way to uh, rain praise on how funny you are. But anyway, the how do so with that quote in mind from Richard Russo about working too hard and knowing that that is what your focus is. How do you write comedy without overworking it into your book? Like because I've also. Um, I've also read that you you know you love tearing down your work so how do you go back to something that's funny and just let it be funny versus trying to make it perfect
1: yeah that's inter- interesting I, I feel like if I you'd mentioned standup comedy and I know enough about stand-up comedy to know that you go out and you work it on the road you stand up in front of people and you tell jokes and the stuff that laughs. The people get the most. The stuff that gets the most laughs is funny, right? You can't do that really as a as a novelist, you know. And I think it's just some instincts. And I think Richard Russo's right about just trying too hard, because when you're trying too hard, it sounds like you're trying too hard, and that's almost embarrassing to read. You can sense when that's happening. Um, but what I do is I a very very uh, Talk aloud, oral kind of writer, and so I read everything aloud, and so there's this sort of speaking cadence to my work that I think uh, is sort of a, a signature of just my writing. If you've if people have read all my books, I think that they're going to kind of get what I'm saying there, and uh, I think that's how I do it. And I can just tell if something something is working. You know, I think, and I don't I don't work on the the comedy stuff as much. The stuff that I really struggle with and work hard on is, you know, the character stuff, you know, that, that kind of stuff. that's not funny. The stuff that doesn't maybe come as naturally to me, that's the stuff where I, you know, really have to kind of dig in and wring my hands and have sleepless nights of.
0: When you're working on your characters, I think, uh, I believe it, it's, it is to the domestic violence and I'm, you know, it's the pressure of the moment where I'm getting this mixed up. It's either domestic violence or we're all damaged where the, Mm -hmm. Ah, uh, the mom is working to be a news reporter. Our, uh, we're, we're all damaged. yeah, we and and I think, you know, and I, I think I heard you talk about how, when you were researching that, you subjected yourself to endless hours of uh, Fox News and uh, <laughs> conservative conservative because that's what the character uh, mm-hmm. that's what her character was aiming for. Um, but is that your particular approach to when you're ty- trying to discover your characters, you know, what their personalities are? Do you are you able to be that like, you know, there is the di- um, you know, are, are you the method actor? Are you the method writer where all of a sudden you just put yourself into that uh, mindset of who this character is for a little bit?
1: You know, it's funny. I haven't had a lot of characters or a lot of subjects that required a lot of research, you know, I haven't written a bunch of world war two dramas or anything like that, where I needed to get facts, you know, real true facts, right. Um, you know, that character, I, I you know, I have, you know, political opinions like anybody else, but I, I, I hadn't watched a lot of Fox news, you know, it's sort of the opposite of my vibe. And, and I like the the push pull of that main character, Andy, and his mother, having this political divide between them. And when I wrote that, I was I was interested in these, you know, this it seems so antiquated now and so, you know, almost charming, the idea of the political divides eight years ago versus what they are now. I mean, now it's terrible. Families are ripped apart and people don't talk to each other anymore. But I felt like I was just starting to see that in families and, and you know, some of my friends' families who these divisions were starting to develop. And I was interested in that. So I dug into Fox News and I did. And the good thing about, I didn't necessarily have to turn on Fox News and stare at it blindly. I got to like go be targeted on YouTube because like everything in the world is on YouTube, and I could be like uh, Sean Hannity, gay marriage, uh, you know that kind of thing, and just just really be specific, which was helpful. And in my most recent book that just came out, um, I'm uh, there's a main there's one of the main characters is a math genius and a hedge fund billionaire. I am neither of those things, right? And so I had to I had to kind of dig in on that and I had to do some research, but I also just had to really really think about it. And my wife is she was an economics major at Harvard, so she has maybe a sense more of that world and so I ran a lot of things by her and I talked to the guy that handles our finances because that's his world and I just kind of kind of dug in and most of the time I can just kind of use my imagination and think about what a character might be feeling or doing or motivated by. But with those two characters in particular, I had to kind of go outside of myself a little because I just didn't have that information built into my head, you know?
0: Yeah. Crowdsourcing. I love it. It's yeah. the um <laughs> I guess when you're doing something like that and maybe this goes back to when you're writing the dialogue and you're speaking out loud, you know, how inclusive are you with other people as your writing progresses? Like, you know, do you um you know, do, are you, are you, do you write a chapter and then have somebody give you feedback on that chapter or do you wait until it's all, you know, until you have your first draft completely done before you let anybody else see it?
1: So I have a, a, like a 50 page uh, kind of process. So whenever I'm trying to get a book off the ground, it's a very delicate time, like because it's a very fragile thing you're trying to do. And the analogy that I always use, it's like trying to get a kite off the ground. So you grab this kite, and you take a deep breath, and you go running, and you run, and you run, and you run, and you you hope it gets up in the air. But for a while, it just keeps crashing, crash, 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 and you got to go back and do it again. So that's how I feel about that first 50 pages. So I write, you know, 50, and maybe it's 70, maybe it's 45, you know, that kind of thing. But just the beginning, the sort of foundation of a book, I write, and then I you know, typically show it to my agent and with the last book was pre was already sold when I was trying to write it. So I was showing it to my editor and getting very specific feedback um, and just trying to get that right. Because I feel like if you get the structure of the house right, the building is going to be a lot easier. And then also when you go back and you're revising you're not making big structural changes. You're just making writing changes. You're working on the characters. You're working on the dialogue. You're not knocking a whole house down and rebuilding it. So I'm pretty obsessive about those first 50 pages and really crowdsource and get feedback from smart people. But then after I get that going, I don't show stuff to people until after it's done, until there's a beginning, middle, and an end. And uh, yeah, so that, that's, when I, that's definitely when I, when I need, need, uh, need feedback from people.
0: And how do you handle that feedback? So I'm, um, you know, I, I work in software mainly, Ooh. and uh, for me in my job, there is this process of where I'm writing code for something, but before it, obviously, you know, before it gets, to, before it gets put out there in the public domain, it has to be reviewed by other developers to check for you know correctness, yeah, accuracy, security, all those things, and I. I tell you, I like to think I'm a thick-skinned person. Like you know, the mm-hmm. the idea that it's not personal is professional. Whenever I get feedback, I've never had a problem with feedback. But sometimes it's hard just to get feedback, <laughs> and it's so arbitrary because it's um, it's an inanimate object. It's software. But sometimes you know the way people can critique your software uh, is it's like it's like ooh that stings <laughs> like yeah. <"Ooh>, how did <laughs> like, that oh, one yeah. cut deep as an author. How do you? Because I can. I, I want to believe that that's like ten times the scope. Because you know, you, when you're writing, you know, you, you know, maybe for you not specifically, but your some of the characters are like a personal investment. How do you handle when you do get feedback from somebody who t- who you know? You, you, let's say the manuscript comes back or the draft comes back and it's just blood red all over because it's just crossed out. You know, every other page.
1: Sure, feedback is. It's it's an interesting hurdle that I think every writer has to to get over because it's just part of it. You know, it's just part of it. There's creative feedback you might have from your friends or your individual writing group, and that's one kind of feedback. And then there's feedback like from bosses, you know, from editors, from editors' bosses, from, you know, people to whom you can't say no, essentially, you know. And, you know, not all feedback is created equal. Some stuff... You know, somebody will make a comment. You're like, oh, okay, that is a very good insight. And you are correct. I'm not emotionally affected by that at all. And then sometimes you'll get one that, like you said, it's like, I need to lay down now because you've hurt my feelings, you know, and uh, I think I've gotten a lot better at it. And I think when I was younger, my initial reaction was to immediately figure out why the person was wrong, you know, and that's not helpful, right? But then you get, I got to a certain point where The people who were giving me feedback, I trusted. They were smart. They were professional at giving feedback on writing. And it's like, why am I going to discard what this person says? And so I've gotten much better at it. And I think working in advertising for so long, I worked in advertising for about 20 years um, before I kind of left that world to do this full time. But you're constantly getting feedback. And you you got to roll with it. And you got to get over it. Or you're just going to go crazy, right? And so that's kind of the attitude that I take. And, you know, my editor in particular is, she's younger than me. She's a woman. She's, I think she's better read and a bit more of an intellectual person than I am. Like I can look at her and not being self-deprecating, but I can say to myself, okay, she is smarter than me and she has a more intellectual perspective on this. And she said something about a character, especially one of my female characters. And I'm like, I have to believe that she's right, you know, and I have to listen to her, and I and I have found with with editors, you know, all of my editors in the past, but my editor, editor, Anne, has been the editor for my last two novels, she is either always right or very much in the neighborhood of right. Even if she's not totally articulating herself perfectly, she is hovering around something that is wrong, and uh, it's best to just accept it right away, you know, it's, it's more efficient that way, you know? <laughs>
0: Uh, whatever yeah whatever anecdote it is it was happy wife happy life happy mm-hmm. editor you know insert rhyme kind of thing. yeah
1: yeah totally
0: so the concept of writing a book and i'm sure you know this is one of the questions I, I want to ask you because i know it's a question you get all the time and it's kind of meta about how you know a question of you know i'm sure people are pitching books to you all the time and people are you know so in some ways you're in your editor's shoes and you have to say like that you know i'm going to wager that some people have offered book ideas to you where you just smile politely and you say like, Oh yeah, that sounds really good. But in head you're thinking like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Um, so when it comes to, but I guess when you're talking to your editors, uh, what's that kind of relationship like when you, you know, when you have an, an idea for a book and you pitch it to them, um, are they working with you to craft that idea or are they just blanket saying like, no, that's not going to sell. Do this instead.
1: So I have a, this is, goes back to my advertising days. I believe in the rule of three. So there's in an advertising and I've, I've used that in my, my writing life too. If you have an assignment, you come up with three ideas, three concepts, and you work hard on pitching them and you like all three of them. And you pitch the ideas, and if one of them gets a yes, you win. That means sixty-six percent of what you worked on goes away, but that you know, that idea, boom, good, right? And so that's what I've that's kind of what I've always always done, and that's what I've done with my last several novels, is just come up with three solid concepts that I want to write about, that I could write about. And I pitched them, you know, before it was my agent, because I was kind of writing on my own without contracts. But then it was more my editor's involved. So my agent and my editor are kind of both involved in just getting feedback. And in each instance that I've done that, the, the idea that's won out has been the idea that I wanted to write most. I thought, and maybe that you know, maybe that's not necessarily a coincidence. Maybe I was pitching it harder or better, or maybe I was sandbagging the other ones. I don't know. But uh, it typically it typically works out, and, and just kind of tweaking you know tweaking ideas a little bit is part of that structural thing I was talking about, getting that first 50 pages right. And um, yeah, but uh, I think, you know, the the rule of three in pitching hard, because it allows you to think through an idea because you can't just say, okay, so there's a closet and it's a time machine and a guy goes back and tries to, you know, whatever. You have to think through it. You know, part of the pitch is, this is the arc that the characters are going to go on. This is generally how it's going to end. And thinking through those things is almost like an outline in your head, you know, and it's good. And if, if an idea is good, it will stand up to, you know, some of that thinking.
0: And when it comes to some of your stories, like when, before you even sit down to write, and I guess this maybe would come up, you know, as you're pitching the idea um, to an editor, but basically, you know, do you, do you, when you write a story, are you writing with just a thread of a thought of, ooh, I had like, I had this one interaction that I think if I, you know, exploited it, it could turn into a t- a novel, or do you just have the whole concept of a novel in your head, and what you're doing when you're writing is you're just filling in those details?
1: So I think of it like you describe two things on different ends of spectrums, right? So like the idea of, oh, just having a, an idea that, oh, wow, this is, this could be interesting. I'm going to sit down and start writing now, versus having everything buttoned up. That's like two ends, you know? I am somewhere typically in the middle, closer to the fully buttoned-up vibe. Um, I don't necessarily know everything, but I kind of know how it's going to end. I know the emotional journey. I know who I want my main characters to be at the end. I know the change I want them to, to go through, their motivations, that kind of thing. The The book that I've been least prepared to write was my second novel, uh, we're all damaged. That was the book. I didn't quite know the ending. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't outline well enough. And that thing took me forever to write consequently. You know what I'm saying? It's just so many blind alleys. And in retrospect, I would just never do that again. And I haven't done that again. Um, I like that book, but it was a, a fist fight to write that thing because I was just so disorganized about it. You know,
0: Disorganized. And I think you've, you know, you've talk to is but you know around that time that was when you got married and you had kids and so you know that you know from domestic violence to we're all damage i think was about 4 years so it's obvious mm-hmm. you know i don't think anyone would blame you
1: for <laughs> uh, yeah for- i had i had, yeah my wife and i we, we got married and we had two kids like right away so we had like two babies essentially and i was working full time and you know, that book was written by a permanently tired person. Every word of that <laughs> novel is written at night by a guy who's just guzzled some caffeine to get the machine going. It was, uh, I don't want to go back to that. It's a much more chill vibe right now for sure.
0: Yeah. You work it out. The King's it's, um, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, if anything, I, I want to reread that now, now knowing that, that it was just an exhausted Matthew Norman writing.
1: That's right. <laughs> it it was very things. tired. Me very tired. Me for sure
0: yeah well you know let's be a little more concrete so like i said you know you've got a, a new book out um all together now that i you know as of recording this podcast came out i think three or four days ago um yeah. i would yeah i don't want to take anything away from you i want to give you the platform to to talk about uh, the book as much as you as as you want maybe give uh give listeners a you know whatever the i don't want to be denigrating and say the the pitch or anything but just yeah, yeah. if you would describe your newest book
1: yeah, I think the uh, the elevator pitch is, um, it's four friends, four very good friends from high school who are now in their mid-30s. And one of them is a guy named Robbie Malcolm, who is a hedge fund billionaire. And on page one, he finds out officially that he's dying. He has, he has uh, pancreatic cancer. And he invites the other three, his best friends to Fenwick Island, where they have a lot of history together, where they kind of grew up going on vacation. And he invites them because he wants to tell them because they don't know. And he has other kind of things up his sleeve, you know, about about ways that he wants to, you know, perhaps improve the lives that the three of them have managed to kind of mess up. And so that's the jumping off point. And so the book begins uh, with these characters kind of blindly going to what they think is a fun beach weekend with old buddies. Right. And it's, um, it's going to be a lot more than that for sure.
0: And I'm sure you get this, um, all the time, you know, And people are asking you like, you know, how real is this story? Are these stories to you in your life? And I think, um, you know, when you wrote Domestic Violets, I think that's the closest I've heard that a, you know, one of the, one of the novels that you've written has mirrored your, your real life. Um, is that a, is that intentional? Do you, do you purposely try to separate your who, you know, your real life from your writing or do, or is that just like, a, has that just been a natural progression of your writing style over the years?
1: I think it's a natural progression, and I bet if you lined up most novelists who have you know multiple books, they would, they would admit or realize that they haven't already realized that that is kind of the progression they've gone through. Because I think when you're first starting out, you're thinking about the things I've experienced, the things I've done, the relationships I've had. How can I make a novel out of that? And unless you have just the craziest life of it, full of adventures. That's not a lot of books, you know, and so you start to look outward and you start to really use your imagination because those first novels that are largely autobiographical, you're, you know, you're just kind of reporting on the experiences you've had and you're learning to be a writer and learning to structure a story and all that. But after you've exhausted your own experiences and tapped into your own relationships as much as you can, you find yourself, uh, thinking of things you haven't experienced and, you know, like I said, using your imagination. So with each novel, I have progressively walked further and further away from my own life. I mean, these characters, um, you know, they they might experience things that I've emotionally experienced and and such, but, you know, none of them are disguised versions of me or, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, in, in exciting territory creatively because I'm just truly making stuff up, you know?
0: So this isn't, uh, yeah, this isn't your subliminal way of letting the world know you're dying of pancreatic cancer or anything, is
1: it? No, no, I'm doing fine. I, I'll, all things well. Knock on this wood desk here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, that's good to hear. It's, um, you know, one thing I, I think that's also, I really enjoy about some of your writing is, you know, you're, you, you kind of just embrace the time that you're writing in. Uh, I think in domestic violence, you know, you
1: were,
0: it was, uh, you too the the main character was uh pretty obsessed with you too and i think you personally are a big you I two be. fan I
1: may, I may be yeah yeah
0: <laughs> i want to ask you if you still um if you still listen to one uh alone in a dark room just to see if it hits you in the feels anymore
1: um from sometimes sometimes that damn song man depends <laughs> on your mood it's like it's like the chemical reactions in your brain are always a little bit different. It's like sometimes when you have a a beer, you're fine. Sometimes you feel drunk after one beer. Like that's how the song "One" is for me. Sometimes I'll hear it and I'll be like, "Oh my god, oh my god, I'm crying." But uh, yeah, then some, <laughs> sometimes it's like whatever. Yeah, that's one of those. That's one of those songs that that digs in. But I'm still a huge YouTube fan. I'm a huge fan of a lot of bands, but YouTube is sort of my my signature band.
0: And- and, uh, you know, rightfully so there are, they, you know, they stood the test of time and they, you know, I don't know if they're still putting out music, but yet there's a, you know, bloody Sunday. Um, mm-hmm. that one, yeah, that would always get to me. But the, uh, one thing that I really liked about, you know, like about your writing is like I said, your, your, how you embrace kind of pop culture in the time. And I think in All Together now, I don't think it's going to be a spoiler because she makes an appearance pretty quickly in the book that you know taylor swift <laughs> comes into play and i think in uh <laughs> we're, we're all damaged there was you know uh reference to et even though that's a little dated um in that mm-hmm. in that sense but i guess do, are you ever worried about you know writing too specific for a time period because you know I, you know every you know it, it's what 2021. And we're still referencing like the great Gatsby at times. And that was written who knows how far away, but like, do you, do you think you're taking a little bit of a risk when you're making your, when you're writing your stories to be specific to a time period like that?
1: I absolutely am taking a risk and I, I feel like it's part of what I do and it's part of my style. It's just part of who I am as a writer, but it is risky. And There are a couple of times, I think I'm generally speaking pretty good at choosing references that are going to end up eventually having a sort of timelessness to them. You know, um, I I feel like in 20 years we're still going to know who Taylor Swift is, right? But I've been burned a couple of times. You know, there's a couple of times, like in Domestic Violence... I make reference to the show, The Hills. Remember that show? I mean, oh yeah, that was for that was forever ago. Like, are we talking about The Hills now in 2000? No, you know, and I got burned by that one. And I, um, you know, I mentioned David Letterman in one of my novels. One of my characters goes on David Letterman and that feels sort of antiquated now. He's been off the air for a long time. So, you know, I, I think that people might, maybe a young reader who's, you know, 22 might, might not even know who David Letterman is. I, I honestly don't know, but you're right. It is a risk and I've thought about it and I've been criticized for it before and I think it's a valid criticism. You know, it, and I I don't want to undercut the seriousness of what I'm trying to do with pop culture and maybe sometimes it, it comes off as that, but I just want the books to feel really grounded in a time and I want people to feel like they're reading something very contemporary and. I know that five, six, seven, eight years from now, they might not feel as much like that. But uh, you know, who knows? The world, the sun might engulf the earth by then. Who knows? It's whatever. I'm just trying yeah, by, to write books. You know. <laughs> by
0: then, we'll all have computers in our brains, and we'll just have to think in yeah. Siri. We'll just automatically show us an image of uh of you know David Letterman and all those all those stats. So don't no worries. Oh, <laughs> Trust me. Yeah, <laughs> we're all, we're almost there. The um, you know, this, uh, I think. One, th- one thing that kind of came up as you were talking about that is how, you know, you've said before um, that you, that you try to write in a way that you, your audience digests media as it is. And you, you said, you've said you tried to write in a way that like Netflix maybe writes their shows or, you know, HBO writes their shows or things like that. And, you know, thankfully you're not trying to write for the TikTok mindset of like 15 seconds at a time, but, you know, why is that? Why, you know, books, books are books, books are separate from TV books are supposed, you know, stories are supposed to invoke totally different parts of our imagination and emotional responses. Like why, why do you, Intentionally choose to write that way um, instead of maybe like taking a stand and saying like you know having some artistic kind of jer- or you know purity with it, with
1: how you write. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a fair question, interestingly put too. Because I I think that I didn't realize that I was doing that at first, you know, and I I have to admit, just as a as a creative person that. I have been influenced dramatically by episodic television and movies, right? I love reading and I love books. And in the time it, it takes me but the time and in the time it takes me to read a novel, I might watch five episodes of brilliantly put together episodic television. Or I might watch two movies with my wife or something like that. And so it's dramatically shaped the way I think about narratives and stories. I think In scenes, and I think very linearly. And I think somewhere along the way, maybe two books ago, I started to realize that's what I was doing, you know, and I started to kind of lean into it a little bit. You know, the idea of episodic television is a big arc, a big story arc with lots of little arcs, and a chapter that ends in such a way subtly that makes you want to read the next chapter. The idea that if you put the book down for whatever reason, I have somehow somehow failed as a writer, and I know that you're not everybody's going to sit and read 300 pages in one fell swoop, but I want them to want to. You know what I'm saying? And that's kind of what I what I want. And if and, and I, I talk about that a lot, and I've written an essay recently about that kind of writing, and it is intentional, but I also think it is just sort of how I'm made up. And if I sat down right now and tried to write uh, something more old school, like a big Philip Rothian or a John, John Irving type epic 600 page thing that wasn't necessarily concerned with these quick hits and these, this forward motion, I don't, I don't think I could do that. So it's, I, I feel like I'm not taking a stand. I'm just leaning kind of into my own abilities, you know, and, and maybe, uh, it, it, it maybe using that as a kind of a jumping off point.
0: Now, I I see it as endearing. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to tell you how clearly how to do your oh, job. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're, you're you're successful enough as it is without uh, input from someone like me. Um, but it's just it's just an interesting aspect because you know, you, uh, I think it just like I said. You know, some I I could I could see both sides of the coin where uh, an author you know makes that stand to say like, no, books are books. Like I'm mm-hmm. not going to cater to our goldfish mindset. And, you know, and that's actually another kind of question, um, is, you know, when you're writing, are you conscious of the fact that, you know, there are just so many distractions. So not only do you have to write a good story just, you know, to, to complete the book, but you basically, it's like, it's almost at this point in, in society, you have to write to keep everyone's attention every five seconds before, you know, to, so th- to stop them from like if they hit like even just a boring paragraph they pick up their phone and they just get distracted mm. and they don't finish the book or anything like is that is that something that weighs on your style
1: of writing it does and I think about it a lot and I think about how distracted I am just as a normal human being and then I think about how distracted everybody else is you know and I think that this idea that when I'm reading, I take a lot of cues from myself as a writer, from myself as a reader. And I can't read anymore. I've been writing for so long, I can't read anymore as just straight up a reader. I'm always thinking about, okay, well, what's, this, what's the author doing here? What are they thinking? You know, that kind of thing. And I am very cognizant of my attention levels when I'm reading a book and when I am all in, and when I am fully engaged in the story. And I'm also aware, even in books that I really, really like, When I'm starting to pull back and I'm thinking maybe about dinner and I'm thinking about I wonder who Colbert has on tonight Or I'm thinking about you know I really should go to bed because I have to get up early I'm aware of when that's happening and I have I I know for a fact that I am the most engaged When I am reading scenes when characters are together talking to each other in real time I start to drift when it's exposition, when it's narration, when I'm being told about how the scenery looks or whatever. Even if I'm being told beautifully by a very, very talented writer, I'm still starting to drift away from the narrative, right? And I'm very aware of that. And I feel like when I'm writing, I have a clock in my head. And it's almost like a quarterback who knows that if he holds onto the ball for longer than four seconds, he's just going to get hit. I feel like if I hold to a scene too long or I have too much blah, blah, the character is going to put it down and they're going to go stream an episode of cheers from 1986 or whatever, you know what I'm saying? And and so I I try very hard to be cognizant of the reader. There's a human being on the end of this who's distracted, who's maybe tired, who's stressed, who has their taxes due next month or, you know, whatever. And try to, try to have them enjoy it and, and uh, escape from all that, you know?
0: Yeah. It, um, it's, it's something I battle with all the time. Uh, I'll be very honest. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, in like I said, your book just came out a few days ago, but I wanted to try and be as prepared for this as I can. So I'm like, I'm about halfway through um, all together now. And I'm, uh, yeah, it's great. I'm going to recommend everybody go pick it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's really. You
1: can vouch for the first
0: 50% of that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't know how the second half is going to turn out, but up until <laughs> yeah. halfway through. Yeah. But it's in, you know, it's kind of like. I had this heart to heart moment when I was when you know, when I, you know uh, when I bought it because I had to buy the ebook edition because um, I, I I just didn't I just couldn't make it to a physical store to pick it up um, and and but I had this heart to heart moment where I was like I don't I don't want to read this on my iPad or on my Kindle because. I think, like, again, like the, uh, the distractions like of, you know, oh, well, I'm just gonna check my email again for the, you know, even though I just checked it 30 seconds ago, like mm-hmm. I, I want to stay engaged with the book. And, and there's, you know, I could say that, you know, your, your writing does have that ability um without, I think, pandering to people. And I just, I just think that that's so unique uh in in writing today um and i just want to say that it's yeah it's, it's just something I, i've grown to really appreciate about how you write
1: thank you I, I think it's just the idea of being accessible is is important because you're not getting your point across if the person puts the book down and wanders away you're not you're not winning right so just try to be as accessible as i can and as conversational as i can and um the idea of something sounds like writing. Maybe I should rewrite it so it doesn't sound like writing. You know, that's something I, I I try to do. I try to do a lot.
0: I think one thing I've noticed in in your writing is Domestic Violence was from like a first person point of view for the most point. But I think at uh, Last Couple Standing and in All Together Now, you've chosen to wrote write with this like third party narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- why do you do that? Why why did you change? Uh, I guess your writing style to write from so many different perspectives instead of having just like the one character.
1: I think that was a natural progression too, you know, trying to be more expansive in the narratives. And I also wanted, frankly, to give more than just white males a perspective. You know, my first two books are first-person male narrators, and I like those two books. I'm not going to, you know, say anything bad about them, but that's what they are. I mean, every every word, every thought, every insight is from a white dude's perspective, right? And if I went back now and wrote Domestic Violence, I, 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 would, I would want badly to give his wife Anna some screen time. Like, what is she thinking? What is going through her mind from her perspective, not filtered through this guy's perspective? You know, and is I just start to think more expansively and more ambitiously and you know frankly just the world we we live in women are reading fiction at least especially the type of fiction that I write overwhelmingly more than men they just they just are and why would I want to build a fence between me and the readers you know I mean why would I want to put the element of doubt in a in a woman's head to be like well I don't want to read this you know it's about just some dude complaining about dude stuff you know so I want to give women a voice and my female characters a chance to speak you know for them for themselves and I have so many important women in my life I have two daughters I don't have any sons I have two daughters my wife Uh, my agent and editor are both women I have you know great women you know female friends uh, that I've gotten close to and you know let's let's give them the microphone you know
0: yeah. And I think it's like the statistic that, uh, it's like like 70% of readers are women or something, or, you know, definitely a majority of women are readers or yeah. so, so, something along those lines. So, yeah, it's, a, it's a, I don't think anyone wants to pick up a book and be like, Oh great. Another w- white male with a problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. I mean, let's
1: see, let's see what he has to say. You know? yeah. We've been listening to this for 2000 years. <laughs> let's give somebody else a chance. You know? exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, like, you know, when you're, you've already said before, and you've described your writing as comedies, but there's, there's so much more than the comedies. I mean, there are these undertones, there's all these relationships and there's are, these personal stories to it. But you know, when you're, when you, when you're writing, I guess, what are you trying to inspire in your readers even though it's a comedy and in yeah. What, what, it, what emotional effect are you trying to invoke in your readers beyond just laughter? if anything?
1: I think for sure I want to lead with emotion as a writer. I, I think that that's something that I can do. I I, I feel like, um, one of, you know, I think writers lean on their abilities and what comes naturally to them. And for me, it's not, I'm not an intellectual writer and I'm not a terribly intellectual person. So I, I don't think I'm going to Move a reader or blow a reader away with just pure insight and a wealth of knowledge and a deeply researched topic that I'm covering from an interesting angle. I think it's the emotions, the you know, the love we have for our friends, for our children, for our spouses, the doubts that we have. It's just I, I want the reader to see themselves and their own feelings on the characters and be able to identify. So I think accessibility and just the ability to identify with what the characters are feeling. Those are, those are totally my goals when I'm, when I'm writing.
0: And how, you know, um, when you're, some of your stories have, you know, relationship problems, um, how, how do you, I guess. You know, you're married. How do how do you explain to your wife, like, don't worry, that's yeah. not us. Like this isn't this <laughs> isn't my Maybe way of saying us.
1: <laughs> That's yeah. not us. That is great with us. Are you kidding? <laughs> um, no, you're right. I get that question a lot. A lot. Especially with my third novel, Last Couple Standing, uh, is about a couple who all of their friends have gotten divorced, they're all of their married couple friends have gotten divorced, and they're the last couple standing of this group of married friends, and they decide to try to have an open marriage to see if that sort of staves off some of the problems that their other friends had to sort of preemptively save their marriage. Um, question after question, what I was, you know, talking about that book was what did your wife think of this? And <laughs> she, she's cool. Like she gets it, you know what I'm saying? Because happy marriages and happy relationships and wonderful relationships with your parents etc those are great things in life but they're not great for fiction right I mean fictions are about things that are teetering on the edge things that are having problems things that are deeply rooted in these structural cracks and relationships that come to a head I mean and so she she's been married to a novelist for a long time she gets that you need that to make a story work and I think you know, that for people listening to this, if you're trying to be a writer or you want to be a writer, do not allow yourself to be self-conscious. Self-consciousness is the enemy of art because I have a wife and I have in-laws and I have children and my children are going to get older and they're going to have friends who read the books and be like, oh my God, did you see what your dad wrote? You, I can't think about all those people. I can't have them on my shoulder or I'm not going to write anything interesting ever again. You have to commit to what you're trying to say and say it and let your characters go as far as they can reasonably go and not worry about you know what people that you know are going to think or people in the carpool line are going to look at me you know <laughs> weird you know just don't <laughs> think about that just write what needs to be written
0: you know it's i, I on a small level try to empathize with that you know and i, I try to journal all the time but and I, when I journal, I try to write in a way of knowing that like, hey, these, these aren't, this isn't Marcus Aurelius's meditations. These aren't going to be published, even if they're, you know, 2000 years old, like nobody's going to read these things. But it's yeah. still just so hard sometimes to not <laughs> to censor myself when I'm writing just in my journal about, you know, to have that kind of, uh, yeah, just, just to be critical of myself when I'm writing. So, I, uh, you know, it's, is that. Is is that the most common mistake you think young writers, young aspiring writers, make today? Is that they're too, I guess, they they're just too self aware.
1: I think that, that that's probably something. You know, I don't I don't get to read a lot of young, uh, you know, up and coming aspiring writers. I you know I, I did an MFA years ago, and you know since then I've just sort of been in. Just kind of the professional world, and typically when I'm reading something, it is published or about to be published, you know, by like a professional writer. I bet that there is some self consciousness. I think that that's probably and self awareness and self consciousness and the idea of self censoring is. I think that that's probably something that if we had a bunch of you know maybe 23 year old writers. Sitting, I bet that they struggle with that. That would be my guess because I don't see how you couldn't. I mean, everything is just with social media is just we're constantly seeing narratives, and we're seeing also stuff try and fail, like people saying things and then getting absolutely murdered for it and stuff like that. I I think those things weigh in, and we. We store those things in our mind and be like, well, I can't say that because this other person has said that and they caused a lot of problems for themselves and those sort of things. And it'll be interesting to see how, you know, what is edgy, interesting fiction, you know, 15 years from now, the 22 year old writers now, when they come of age in their careers, and they're in their late 30s and 40s writing their novels, what are those going to be like? What's going to be controversial and interesting? I don't, I, I don't know. I, I think talent weighs out and they'll find a way and there's going to be great writing in 15 years. I'm not one of those people who says the future is doomed. I, I don't think that at all, but it'll be interesting to see just what, what they have to say and what they want to talk about.
0: I totally agree. It's the uh, it's. I think it was either like um, Socrates or Aristotle or something. You know, all those millennia ago, who at one point was critical of the written word um, because he felt that you know at the you know before the written word or the advent of the written word was going to cause people to not be able to remember things anymore because they were going to be able to write them down and stuff. And it's like the, the sky clearly
1: didn't collapse because we started writing. Yeah, we, things. We, we made it through, we made it through that.
0: <laughs> yeah. I have, I have full faith in us that we're, uh, that, you know, and I, I, I agree. It'll be really interesting to see what the next um, great novel is out there. But, you know, speaking of great novels and, you know, we're, it's, I, I hate this because it comes up so quickly, but we are coming up on an hour, and Look all I that. want to like do is hour. just- We've been all...
1: talking for an hour. Well, How is you, that possible? You, you've been listening to me ramble for an hour, like I should say. I, I think uh, it should also be pointed out that you and I both have very similar voices. I think a lot of people could listen to this <laughs> and just sort of doze off. I'm from the Midwest. Are you from the Midwest? St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> okay. I'm from Omaha. So you and I both sound like we should be delivering the news. You know, you know, oh, there's what, traffic I think on this... 995. You know, <laughs> you know the...
0: <laughs> let, let, let me lull you to sleep with the latest jazz trends from, you know, yeah. Papua New Guinea kind of NPR style. <laughs>
1: Exactly. Yeah. People but uh yeah, so I think our voices match very nicely. So we're we're doing very well. But um
0: this is the launch point for uh Matthew Norman and Adam Casey's ASMR uh, podcast channel, um where we just we just talk
1: people to sleep. Are you having trouble sleeping? Well we've got these two guys, these two dudes. But uh yeah, I think that podcast I I was thinking about this the other day, podcasts and ebook, like audiobooks, I mean. um, I think that those things are really going to affect writing, like how I was talking about how I think episodic television has affected novels because it's just good and very, very immersive. Um, I think people are interested in hearing books now and hearing dialogue and conversation in a way that maybe they weren't X amount of years ago. I don't know how many years ago. But you know the, the audiobooks, Like I, I, don't, I haven't listened to any of my audiobooks all the way through, but I've listened to good bits of them. And it's a professional, talented actor doing it. You know, I mean, it sounds great, right? And so <laughs> are writers going to start writing for audio performances? I don't know, maybe that's gonna be something maybe that'll be the future. Maybe books will be thought of as performance pieces much more than they are right now.
0: That is that is such an interesting insight yeah and of course you're going to throw it at me
1: with you know as we're coming up on this hour. i know that one was absolutely free as we uh leave you know as we run out of time here's an insight okay goodbye you know. <laughs> me, Yeah.
0: oh yeah no it's hey, it's if anything it's this it's the sign of a good storyteller because uh it's a good cliffhanger because i absolutely uh you know i doubt that this will be your last book and i absolutely want to have you back on the show when uh uh, just before I do give you that, uh, uh, you know, as, as we're gearing up for that Pulitzer Prize um, ceremony and I need to uh, and I, I need to dialogue my uh, intro speech for you. I absolutely, absolutely want to make sure that you're on the show before uh, before if, I, uh, before then. But, you know, I do if, ask when if, I, slash when. if slash if when slash when I win when. the Pulitzer. I Only will come on this of time
1: and I will be so drunk the entire time. <laughs> I will be I will be the most obnoxious, screaming, drunken person. But uh I'm sorry, you were you were trying to outro and i No, just no, no, talking, no. But, uh, you know. <laughs>
0: no, no, it's a, I only do that because again, like I've I've done enough of these now to know I want to it's a, i I will ramble and I will eat up the rest of your weekend if you let me. Um and so yeah, it's it's because I honestly guys, you know, beyond having beyond having professional respect for you, I am just a fan. And this is just one of those things where it's like, oh my god, I get to talk to Matthew Norman today. This is so cool. <laughs>
1: I I appreciate that. This has been lovely. Uh, I'm happy to come back on and hopefully I have many more books and many more conversations with you in the future.
0: Absolutely. Well, Matthew, so thank you so, so much for coming on the show. And uh, we'll just talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. That is going to be a wrap for this episode of the It Matters to Me podcast with my friend and guest, Matthew Norman. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to anything we talked about, especially any of Matthew's books. And I can't recommend enough altogether now. I finally had the opportunity to finish it over the past couple of days, and it really just, I think, is one of his best works. And also, if you have a minute and you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review and sharing this show with a friend. And if there's someone you think I should have on the show, please let me know by writing an email to adam at itmatterstomepodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and until the next one, this is Adam Casey, signing off.